Hi, everyone. It's Ken. Before we start, I want to share some exciting news. We've paired with Midas Touch, so you can now watch these interviews on YouTube. Just search for the Midas Touch YouTube channel or click the link in the show description. Thanks and enjoy the episode. All of this federal funds is being used at this university that's then nitpicking who has access to their resources that are being funded by the government. So that's like really discrimination at its finest, not allowing LGBTQ students to have that same access. I'm Ken Harbaugh, and this is Burn the Boats, a podcast about big decisions. My guest today is Andrew Hartzler, whose video calling out his aunt, Republican Congresswoman Vicki Hartzler from Missouri, went viral. In a speech on the House floor, Aunt Vicki, as Andrew refers to her, pleaded tearfully with her colleagues to vote against LGBTQ rights. Andrew himself is gay and advocates against discrimination, conversion therapy, and public funding of anti-LGBTQ plus institutions. Andrew, welcome to Burn the Boats. Hi. Thank you so much for having me. I have been following your activism and your lawsuit ever since that video came out, and I am incredibly impressed. But for our our listeners who aren't familiar with how this all started, I want to play that video. If you can indulge it one more time, I'm sure you've seen it a million times. Is that all right? Yeah, no problem. All right, here we go. Hang on a second. Today, a United States Congresswoman, my Aunt Vicky, started crying because gay people like me can get married. I hope and pray that my colleagues will find the courage to join me in opposing this misguided and this dangerous bill. I yield back. So despite coming out to my aunt this past February, I guess she's still just as much as a homophobe. Let's be clear, Obergefell is not in danger but people and institutions of faith are. Aunt Vicki, that's not right. Institutions of faith like religious universities are not being silenced. They're being empowered by the U.S. government to discriminate against tens of thousands of LGBTQ students because of religious exemptions, but they still receive federal funding. The bill's implications submit to our ideology or be silenced. It's more like you want the power to force your religious beliefs onto everyone else. And because you don't have that power, you feel like you're being silenced. But you're not. You're just going to have to learn to coexist with all of us. And I'm sure it's not that hard. Well, Andrew, did you have any idea that that video would get the reaction it did? I mean, appearances on on cable news, it blew up online. Were you expecting any of it? No, not at all. I actually, I had never really posted on TikTok except like once before. And I maybe had like 10, 20 followers. And then like overnight, this had like over a million views. And then ultimately it ended up with me going to the White House the following week. Um, Or this video came out on a Friday and then I went to the White House on a Tuesday. But yeah, it was incredible that the video had such a positive response in general. Um, I have like so many lesbians actually have reached out to me saying that they'll be my aunt and I don't need Aunt Vicky anymore, which has been like really comforting. But ultimately, like I wasn't really surprised when I heard my aunt say this. Really when some, when I first woke up on, I believe it 
the video came out on a Thursday of my aunt like crying. I thought that it was from like 2015 or when the Equality Act was trying to get pushed through. I didn't realize that I was like, whoa, this is today. Um, and I kind of sat on it for like 24 hours because I wanted to like make a response, but I needed to find like the right way. And ultimately, like I stayed up all night, like Thursday night and posted this at like 6 a.m. And then finally went to bed. And when I woke up at like a few hours later, yeah, I had like a missed call from BuzzFeed. As positive as that response was, I got to believe it was painful at some level. And uh, I'm going to ask you about some of your trauma growing up, but the decision to call out someone in your family that publicly, it must have given you pause. I mean, you pulled it off brilliantly. Your your poise and your affect in that video struck all the right notes. But I, I got to think that at some level it hurt. Yeah, it's definitely something that no one should ever have to do. It shouldn't be necessary to have to correct your own relatives. And even like after like coming out to my aunt this past February and being met with a really like, I still love you, but you know that like this lifestyle that you're going, the path that you're going down is a sin and that I don't support it. Well, how can you not support me as a person, but say you love me? And oh, really when Congress first like voted in the House to like be able to start like discussing the Respect for Marriage Act back in, I think it was September, early September. I remember seeing that my aunt didn't vote that day. And I knew that she was in Washington, D.C. So I was a little confused. And I was like, oh, well, maybe she refrained from voting on the Respect for Marriage Act, like the initial vote to like for Congress to be able to start talking about it. Um, I thought that maybe that was in response to like me coming after her. So I kind of got my hopes up. And then I was like specifically called out by her inviting, like she said to my mother, like, let's have Thanksgiving dinner at my house this year and make sure Andrew knows that he's invited. And I was like, okay, that's kind of weird. But like, why wouldn't I be invited? But then this happened with the Respect for Marriage Act and it really was like a surprise because it wasn't what my aunt was like sending signals to as to like how she would react. But now she's no longer in office, so. I read your blog post titled Fix Him and it was it was hard to read. It was gut-wrenching and so deeply personal. And we're going to share a link in the show notes. But I want to use that as an entry point to your story because I think listeners need to know how you how you arrived at that video. I mean, you're coming to this from a place of, of deep personal experience and trauma. If you're okay talking about it, uh, like you yeah. did in the blog post, can you share the story of that moment that you describe in that blog post with the title, Fix Him? Yeah, that was talking about like the very first time that I came out to my parents um, when I was 14 years old. It was in the summer. I had just gotten back from this like trip in California where I like spent a week at UCLA doing like a 
leadership camp. And I got like a lot of exposure to people outside of the Christian bubble. And I, it was like, finally I could be like, Oh yeah, I'm gay. And people around me were like, Oh, that's so cool. And I think I came back from that trip, just like really empowered and like, not really, I wasn't hiding myself as I usually would be. Um, and my parents got like kind of suspicious. Well, ultimately, like my mom found a reason that I was in trouble for something obscure. So like she took my phone and like I always would delete all my messages. And she like decided to go through my photos to see if I had like any family photos she wanted. And she found a screenshot of a text message between me and a boy where I was like referring to a boy as like attractive um, in some sense. And I remember like, my mom, she called in my father, like from the office where he works. And my dad came in and we were sitting like on the couch. They were sitting on the couch and I was sitting across from them. My dad said, like, is what you said in this text true? And I, I didn't really respond. I just kind of looked at him and was like, what do you mean? He said, are you attracted to other men? And I was like, yes, I like boys. So that time I was 14. And I remember like, I think I said it in the blog post, like the way he looked like it was a tearful moment for him. And my mom was just like, Oh, sweetie, no, no, no. That's how you'll get AIDS and die. And I was just like, no, but yeah, it was definitely a long road from there where ultimately like my parents told me to go to my room. And I remember just like standing outside their door, listening to what they were having to say. And they were like bickering between each other about whose fault this was. And my mom said to my dad, like, this is your fault. You need to fix him. And I think that like the reason that blog post is entitled fix him is because that was a very monumental phrase that kind of stuck with me that feeling like I needed to be fixed. And then ultimately being sent to conversion therapy in multiple forms, but like most specifically with a conversion therapist in Kansas city, who was also named Andrew and that same conversion therapist, my sophomore year of college, my aunt Vicky hosted at the U.S. Capitol for like a conversion therapy leadership conference. And I remember when I was a sophomore in college and I saw the Huffington Post article and it was like, Congresswoman Vicki Hartzler hosts conversion therapy group at Capitol and showed a picture of all the like ex-gay conversion therapists. And there was... Andrew Franklin, my old one. Mad Magazine. Advertising mascots. B-movie posters. And cartoons. Oh yeah, can't forget cartoons. If you get the funky connection that ties these pop culture gems together, you'll dig two designers walk into a bar. See, we're a couple of creatively curious pals living between the bookends of grand museums and dive bars. Hey, you know the place. The sweet spot where highbrow and lowbrow become drinking buddies. So join our barroom chats as we talk influential work and uncover stories of how the familiar became iconic. Think behind the music for the stuff we love. Check out our website at twodesignerswalkintoabar.com. And listen wherever you get your podcasts or visit evergreenpodcasts.com. A news story gets shared by a friend on social media or you catch a tweet that really makes your blood boil. But how do you separate fact from fiction? That's the premise behind Disinformation, a 10-part series from Evergreen Podcasts and Emergent Risk International coming this fall. 
Tune in to Disinformation wherever you get your podcasts. And remember, don't believe everything you read. And your college experience wasn't exactly the liberating moment that it is for a lot of people. Uh, can you talk about how you wound up at a deeply conservative evangelical Christian University, Oral Roberts University? Yeah. So like I went through the conversion therapy process, like that was really starting right on the beginning of my freshman year of high school. And then it was like three times a week. And then for a summer, I did like a intensive like inpatient type conversion therapy. And then, but really with my, my parents, I told them what they wanted to hear because that was the only way to like, hopefully survive. And I mean, I did, but I just was saying anything to have to not have to keep going to these people. And I think that my parents like started believing it or they were believing it because I was telling them what they wanted to hear. And then my senior year came along and I remember it was like near sometime in December of my senior year of high school. And my dad just like came up to my room with the sheet of paper and it said the Hartzler scholarship fund. And he was like, here, and he handed it to me. And I'm like, what is this? And it was like, go to Oral Roberts university and receive like full tuition benefits. And then you get like X, Y, Z, which is some like pretty good incentives and go to any other college and you're on your own. And he was like, so what are you going to pick? Like, are you kidding me? <laughs> like, this isn't an option. Like, I guess I'll go to ORU. But the thing was, I had never heard of Oral Roberts University at that time. Before that, my dad had never brought it up. I never heard of it. It was not even on my radar. I wanted to go to Pepperdine. Have you visited Pepperdine? Um, I did not visit Pepperdine. It's, it's absolutely beautiful. I, <laughs> I wish you had gone there in some ways, but your, your advocacy having experienced ORU is pretty incredible story as well. So I'll let you keep going. Yeah. I would say that I, I really don't regret it, like going to ORU. I mean, not so much that I had a choice, but I was asked like if I could do it over again. I would do the same because like knowing that the harm that I would be putting myself in, but also if I would have gone somewhere else and like perhaps paid my own way through college as many do, but then I, I may be, you know, 24 years old and still not realize that there are hundreds of thousands of LGBTQ students across the country that are enduring this type of suffering that I would still be like, unknown to that harm. So I'm, I'm, grateful that I was able to experience that firsthand. So now I can hopefully make a difference for others. That's an incredibly wise outlook. I'm not sure I would have the strength, even in hindsight, to see it that way. Uh, you have described yourself as a survivor of Oral Roberts University, which is, it's a chilling phrase. Can you share your experience starting sophomore year of being reported on and monitored and what it was like to be a gay student at a school like Oral Roberts University. There were a lot of other gay students, particularly like theology majors and psychology majors, which I was. And I think that the mindset is that is if you go into ORU, you're either 
going to try to study the Bible so much so that you can hopefully fit yourself into the Bible, or you're going to study the mind so that you can figure out what's wrong with you. But my junior year at college, I was called into the dean's office for something that I had no idea what. And ultimately, it was because I had brought my partner onto campus. He went to TU, Tulsa University, which is like a private college in Tulsa. I brought him like into my dorm room, like to hang out. And one of my like neighbors had reported me apparently. Well, anyways, they like threatened me with expulsion if I didn't attend these accountability meetings, which the accountability meetings was really like kind of the same rhetoric that was being pushed at me during conversion therapy, like, which, yeah, I was like, oh, this again. But thankfully it was right before COVID started. So I didn't have to attend too many of those because once COVID started, they went virtual and I was like, I just kind of fell under the radar. And then I kept my head down and I graduated a year later. Does Oral Roberts University receive federal funding? It's a it's a loaded question because this leads yeah. to your activism over the last couple of years. Yeah. So actually, last year alone, Oral Roberts University, like all religious universities, are non-for-profits. So their like, tax records are public knowledge. You can Google them and they pop right up. I made a TikTok this past weekend about it. And like, according to their tax records this last year, they received $59 million in federal funding. And that's, some of that is from like the COVID-19, like federal, like relief money for higher ed institutions. And uh, some of that is from like Pell Grants. And of course, like FAFSA and other government funding and like research grants that they do at the university. Like all of this federal funds is being used at this university that's then nitpicking who has access to their resources that are being funded by the government. So that's like really discrimination at its finest, not allowing LGBTQ students to have that same access or like telling them that they have to go through conversion therapy type practices or denying them readmission as in like there was someone who's also a plaintiff and in the summer they got married to their wife and then they were told that they wouldn't be readmitted. And when you go to a school like Oral Roberts University, a lot of your credits that you're required to take are like these religious classes. So all that money is wasted because those aren't going to transfer other places. Right. And then while you're there, there's sometimes overt persecution. I, I want to read this account from you from one of your accountability meetings with the dean. This was, I believe, your junior year. You said, the dean instructed me to read several verses from the Bible, which he referenced while condemning me for my suspected romantic encounters with other men. The dean pressured me for names and information about other students at ORU who were, as he said, struggling with their identity, saying that I was, quote, allowing them to suffer in hell, end quote, if I did not reveal their names so that such students could receive help. This is an institution that receives millions of dollars of taxpayer money, my taxes and your taxes, and is essentially subsidized for that kind of persecution of students. Is that a fair description of the situation? Yeah, yeah, that's very fair. And it's like, 
currently the government is complicit. Like it's almost like because they're funding this money and they're not really batting an eye at it, it's like they're putting their stamp of approval on this discrimination, which contradicts everything I know about the Biden administration, but it's still being done. Can you give us an update on the status of the lawsuit? It's a group of students, right? The the REAP lawsuit. It's the REAP.org and it's the Religious Exemption Accountability Project. So they basically just partnered with a group of, there's like 44 of us, of plaintiffs from religious institutions across the country. Some are current students, which is extremely brave of them. And most of them are alumni like myself. But actually this past Friday, a federal judge in Oregon granted the defendant's claim to dismiss the lawsuit. So the lawsuit was dismissed this past Friday, but it was an unfortunate initial ruling, as in the legal team with REAP is currently looking at options and how to move forward. And our fight is far from over because even though the lawsuit may have had that like initial ruling now, it doesn't mean that students still aren't being discriminated against. So our work is nowhere near finished. I hope that you are successful in the courts, but knowing how long these things sometimes take, it's going to be a tough road. In terms of changing hearts and minds, short of changing the law, have you noticed a shift on campuses like ORU? Are young people hopefully opening themselves up to your way of thinking in a way that their parents didn't? See, that's difficult because ORU is such a unique bubble and it's such like strong indoctrination. But one thing I will say is that like everything that I've like done and put out there, like I receive like feedback and people message me from like past students or current students. And I would say that like this class this year that started in fall, like this past August, I've had multiple, like more than any other class of like students from ORU reach out to me in like a favorable way, which has been very encouraging to see that like there's people that are that young in their time at ORU and they're realizing that what's going on here isn't right. And they're being aware of it by like, what they see that I put out there and they're upset. And also like one thing that the lawsuit has brought with it is information and informing people as in like, there was a time where two years ago before the lawsuit started that I'm sure tens of thousands of people had never even heard the word religious exemptions. Like people that didn't grow up in that area had no idea what it was. Hopefully like the, Millions of people that saw my TikTok, they, they know what religious exemptions are. And they're, people are getting upset. Um, like reading through the comments on some of my posts, I see that like people have no idea that their federal money is being used at these universities. Because you always think like, oh, private institutions, no federal money, but there's loopholes. What do you say to those students who reach out to you? I imagine some of them are LGBTQ plus students, how do you counsel them about being at a university that denies their very identity? So this past Thanksgiving, like I was invited, this is before any of the stuff with my aunt happened, but I was invited home for 
Thanksgiving and I like chose to stay to Tulsa because there was a student at ORU and they had come to me uh, like through social media and basically they had come out to their parents in the fall and then their parents told them that they weren't welcome home for Thanksgiving. <laughs> and I was like, okay, well, we're going to have Thanksgiving dinner together. Good for you. <laughs> so it's actually, I, I really enjoyed that part. And probably it's a big reason why I still stay in Tulsa. It's not going to keep me here forever, but it certainly is making my time here look very worthwhile. The larger fight for enshrining and expanding LGBTQ plus rights has hit some roadblocks of late in Congress, at least during the Democratic control of the House. There was some major success, but you know, you're seeing some revanchism across the country. Do you keep tabs on the status of conversion therapy laws and the things that are happening at, at the state level? Yeah, I mean, I try. I have a bunch of Google alerts for like any time like certain words are mentioned in the news, I get an email. So I try to keep myself up to date, but like there's so much always happening. Um, and sometimes it's just overwhelming and I have to take like a mental health break. But I, I saw recently Wisconsin like made conversion therapy, like it was illegal and then they made it legal again, which is kind of a confusing process what's going on there. But a big thing that I've been doing is what's made me very curious is the people that are pushing these laws. Like, for instance, when I heard that someone made conversion therapy legal again, I'm like, who is this lawmaker? Like, I think it's my psychology background. But whenever I see someone pushing like, oh, we have to make all these anti-trans bills, like in Oklahoma, someone just introduced a bill that would ban transgender healthcare for anyone under the age of 26, which I'm like, that makes no, so it's like what, when, where, why, you know, and it's disturbing. Are you discovering like common themes when you look at these lawmakers who are doing it? I mean, I, I have my my own ideas. There's often a fair amount of projection or you know latent issues, but are you noticing anything? I mean, that always is like the first suspect, like projection, or because often like if people take something for such a reason, it's because of they're like hiding it within themselves. But this particular lawmaker in Oklahoma is actually a part of like a kind of weird cult called the City Elders. And I like dug up these old YouTube videos and he had said some really crazy things. And I, I made a TikTok about it. But as far as like actionable things that you can do in a place like Oklahoma, a deeply red state where it's like, such overwhelming majority of politicians are Republican. And what's crazy is there's even some Democrat, like the few Democrat uh, members of the House in Oklahoma will vote no or will vote yes, like with anti-LGBTQ legislation. So I've like kind of shifted my focus less from trying to counteract the Republicans and more to like the Democrats. Like, hey, what's going on? What is your overall sense of the degree of progress or backsliding? I'm a, an optimist by nature, so I, I guess it's how I fall asleep at night. I think that things over time are getting better. And most of that is because I just have enormous faith in young people to fix what we broke. But what is your sense of the direction in which we're heading? I think a big thing that I've always kind of 
kept going on is that I would say like over half of the homophobic legislators and politicians and people in the world right now, they're going to like, they're going to meet their end at some point and I'll still have a full life to live. That's something that's really kept me going. But then the reality of that is that hate is taught. So for everyone that they like nurture and like they raise up to be adults, like there's that reality of them also being homophobic. So I think that like people will always do better if they can. And I hope that people can. Well, you are proof that the cycle can be interrupted. Thank you for for all you're doing. Last question. What was it like standing on the White House lawn a couple of days after you released a video to your 13 followers and seeing the President of the United States enshrine in law the Equality for Marriage Act? Yeah. I mean, it it gives me goosebumps like to this day. Um, But like the Biden administration did a wonderful job of making it very I don't know if they did this on purpose, but they had like Sam Smith come out, play a really like kind of sobby song. And like looking around, like there were people like sobbing. I know I was like crying and not shake my phone, taking photos. <laughs> but yeah, it was, it was really incredible. Um, Like little me sitting there in the crowd and like to the left of me is like two contestants from RuPaul's Drag Race in front of me is like, one of the directors of one of the largest like LGBTQ organizations in the world. And to the right of me is like his mother. (laughs) And it's like, that was actually very, um, I wouldn't say hard is the right word. That was just like, wow, your, your mom's here with you. That's cool. Well, I I said last question, I I have to ask one more. How are you doing now? You managed to get yourself through Oral Roberts university. What are you up to now? And do you have any hope? for reconciliation with your family and, uh, and Aunt Vicky? I, I think that like, yeah, definitely I have hope for reconciliation soon. I haven't been back to Kansas City since everything's like started. That's where I'm from. But I hope the next time that I'm there that I'll be able to walk across my lawn into my aunt's yard because we're literally next door neighbors and say hi. But my parents, they've been really good. Because, uh, like, I put them through a lot as far as, like, coming out when I was 14 and going back in the closet and coming out again when I was a sophomore in college. So it's kind of like this roller coaster that we've been on together. But now they're, they've come a long ways and they'll continue to hopefully go much longer ways because they still do have a ways to go. Well, if hate can be taught, passed down the generations, I sure hope that love can be taught teaching our parents so thank you for that too andrew it's been great talking to you good luck yeah thank you so much thanks again to andrew for joining me you can find him on twitter at andy hartzler thanks for listening to burn the boats if you have any feedback please email the team at kharbaugh at evergreenpodcasts.com we're always looking to improve the show For updates and more, follow us on Twitter at team underscore Harbaugh. And if you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to rate and review. Burn the Boats is a production of Evergreen Podcasts. Our producer is Declan Roars, and Sean Rule Hoffman is our audio engineer. 
Special thanks to Evergreen executive producers, Joan Andrews, Michael DeAloya, and David Moss. I'm Ken Harbaugh, and this is Burn the Boats, a podcast about big decisions. Welcome to Anthology of Heroes, the podcast that explores the most pivotal moments of history through the eyes of those who lived it. In this podcast, we don't spend our time recounting facts and dates. Instead, we follow in the footsteps of national heroes, kings, or ordinary people who lived and breathed the moments that shaped our world. We're not hemmed in by eras, borders, or religions. Instead, we seek out the tales of those who defied the odds and fought passionately for their beliefs. Whether they're right or wrong is up to you to decide. From Vercingetorix's doomed rebellion against Rome, to Osceola's unshakable war against the USA, all the way up to the inspiring Sobibor concentration camp uprising in World War II, each episode is an immersive listening experience, blending music and sound effects to really draw you into the story. Our episodes go for about 45 minutes, making them perfect for your commute, and are crafted using a wealth of historical sources which I list on our website if you want to learn more. I'm the host, Elliot Gates, and I'm thrilled to have you joining me as we uncover history's hidden gems and illuminate the faded pages of our past. Look out for the Anthology of Heroes podcast on Spotify, Apple Music, or anywhere else you get your podcasts from. This podcast was produced with the support of the Ohio Motion Picture Tax Credit and in partnership with the Ohio Development Services Agency.